0: The Garden Church Podcast. The following message. So what is the meaning of life at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California? 42. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't seen that yet. Uh, What like what is the purpose of life? Is there a God and what is he like? Why is it that when I go and spend a a time in nature alone that I feel more connected? But when I'm surrounded by crowds, I feel a sense of loneliness. And uh, why is it that when I do something I really love, I feel more alive? Why are some relationships harder than others? Why is it so hard to stick to a diet or a workout plan or New Year's resolutions? And why is it that every time I try to do, have positive change, I'm met with resistance in my life? How come when I buy stuff, I feel better about myself? Or if I wear clothes that make me feel better, um, I, I actually think I look better? Do you know what I'm talking about? The new shoes that makes you feel a sense of worth? How come when I go to a concert, I have a sense of awe? Or if I have a meal with good friends, it can be described as transcendent. And what does any of this have to do with God? Or life's toughest questions. How do I live as a good Christian? Or what is God's will for my life? It seems like there are a lot of books to answer these questions. Books about theories. Of what it means to really live. And and here's some of the books that you might see. The Secret. Live your best life. Every day. Friday. Purpose driven habits of highly effective. Think. Grow and be rich. With the four hour work week of synchro destiny. And utmost for his highest. These are the top selling books. For self help. It seems like the world. Is asking. And searching for answers. To tough questions of what life is really all about. I spend a lot of time helping people understand who God is um, and applying that for their lives and helping people see the God of Scripture and the implications that it has for the God of Scripture to be lived out in their lives. And the significant transformation when we have a correct view of God um, is profound when we apply the correct view to our daily life. I have non-Christian friends, um, neighbors that I've talked to that are, are always asking what how, how to um, what does it mean to really live? Or how do I how, how do I do what I really love to do in life and get paid for? it? Um, they, they talk to me about um, life's toughest questions. And, and I was thinking about this. And this is kind of what spawned this series uh, is that I realized that whatever is true for Christianity, it has to be true for humanity. Whatever is true for Christianity, it has to be true for uh, for humanity. Whatever is true for Christianity has to be true for humanity. So we should have as these questions emerge, the answers to these questions should have dramatic impact with those that are unsaved or don't follow God. And so for us, we're going to explore over the next 15 weeks um, what it means to love God to love others and to love yourself. And I think Jesus has some interesting things to say. And so I just want to intro the series um, uh, with uh, some some scripture. If, you, if you're if you with me, we're going to talk about this. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Uh, Greg's going to pass them out. There are Bibles up in the front and both on the right and left. There are Spanish Bibles. If you speak Spanish, we have those now. Um, and I, I just encourage you to have... have the written word in your hands, not just an iPhone or Android or whatever it is, but it's good to be flipping through pages as we read about the significance of what this means for us today. So Luke chapter 10, Jesus is asked a very common question, a very important question in verse 25. It says an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus teacher. He, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Alam Habam. What does it mean for me to live on in the age to come? This is what he's asking. He's not asking, how do I go to heaven when I die? He's asking from a Jewish perspective when the age to come, when God enters back into history, how do I continue on living a blessed life with God? This is a very common question in the first century. Uh, Religious leaders would want to know. And the question has to do with Jesus's interpretation of the uh, of the entire law. And he like a rabbi, Jesus responds. What uh, verse 26? Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it or how do you interpret the law? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. He got it right. And if you follow the Gospels, rarely do people get it right with Jesus. Have you noticed that? <laughs> he's always like, is it this or this? And, and Jesus kind of replies, well, it's kind of, it's this. Um, is it, is it, is it no or yeah? Uh, is it, is it this or that? And he's like, yes. You, have you ever had that type of response to Jesus? It's so confusing. Okay, go to Matthew. There's another response in Matthew's Gospel. Um, This story is in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And I just want to frame it for us in verse uh, chapter 22 of Matthew. Take a left verse 34. This is another reading of the text hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law. So these are the theologians, the lawyers of the Jewish tradition. These are the the academics of Jesus's day. They're coming to question and and kind of trap Jesus in his teaching. And he says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. Notice it's a little different. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is alike. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two verses. So Jesus is questioned. How do you interpret the scriptures? How do you summarize the law? And he takes two commandments. Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18. And he says the entire law and tradition of the prophets rest on these two verses. In order to understand everything else, all you need to understand is love God and love others as yourself. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 and Leviticus 19:18. This question was common. Um, the question was about how do you interpret scripture, Jesus? They want to know uh, rabbis in the first century would would do this all the time. They wanted to bring the, the, the 613 commandments. There were 613 commandments in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. 248 of those commandments were positive and 365 were prohibitions. And so for them, this wasn't a hypothetical question. This was a a practical question. What does it mean to fulfill the the Old Testament, the laws? And so you would try to condense uh, the commandments to fewer and fewer precepts. And so this was practiced by the Jews. Let's look at some of these um, texts. So you had rabbis over time that would take Micah six, eight and say, this is what it means to fulfill the law. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 56, maintain justice and do what's right. Um, the, the rabbis of, of the Old Testament and um, during the intertestamental periods and still to this day, they would try to reduce the scripture, the laws, to just a few words. Seek me, the Lord, and live. Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous will live by faith. One, a, a famous rabbi, Hilal. A hundred years before Jesus was even born, says, whatever this is, this is the command. This is what it means to fulfill the Torah, the law of God. Whatever is hateful to you, do not do that to your fellow. Does it sound familiar? Jesus inverts it. Do unto others as you would have them do uh, unto yourself. That's from Halal. And then Rabbi Akiva, in a hundred years after Jesus dies says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the great principle of the Torah. So this is a very common Jewish practice. And so Jesus' response as a Jew, he's responding in a very traditional way. And he takes the, the most famous passage that the Jews practiced, the Shema prayer. If you would go to Deuteronomy 6, 4. And I want to just frame our time understanding the Jewish perspective of the Torah, of what it means to live a righteous life with God. So Deuteronomy six, four, it's called the Shema. And traditionally, um, every this was the first prayer taught to any Jewish child. And if you would wake up and put your feet on the ground, you would say the Shema when you went to bed, you'd say the Shema as you exited your house and entered your house. You would say the Shema when you go to uh, the synagogue on Saturdays, you would recite the Shema and the, the congregations or the, the, those attending the synagogue would stand up. So why don't we stand if you can please stand with me and let's recite out loud one of the earliest what they would say is the Jewish creed. And it's, we're just going to recite four and um, five, and it says this. Let's say this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. All right, stay standing. Let's try this in Hebrew. Here it is. Yeah, I'm going to teach you some Hebrew. Can you go to the next slide real quick, um, and we'll come back to this, Alyssa? Thank you. Ready? I'll say it, and then you can you can practice. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Ready? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. You can be seated. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. This is what you would recite as a creed. This is fundamental to. This is the declaration of all things spiritual for the Jewish community. Shema Yisrael, hear Israel, listen up. Adonai is a, a variation of God. And the original translation was Yahweh, Y-H-W-E-H, the, um, the unspoken name of God. So they changed it to Adonai. Eloheinu is El, comes from another variation of God. So it's God is our God, God, Echad, one, or oneness, or alone. So it's a, a proclamation that Israel, is, a God is our God. Israel, He alone or he is one And then it goes on and it says love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength These commands that I give to you today are to be on your hearts impress them on your children Talk about them when you sit at home when you walk along the road when you lie down when you get up Tie them as symbols on your hands bind them on your foreheads write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates when I go to I went to israel uh, in November with my wife and we we stayed in a hotel in Jerusalem and in every hotel we stayed at actually has the commandments written uh, on the doorpost. So you have these metal, these golden. Um, uh, what's it called? Yeah, Azusa. Yeah, that's right. Say it again. Yes, mezuzah. And that would you would touch it as you walk in and recite the Shema. Some of some of the uh, Orthodox Jews would do that. So um, this was the central command for the Jewish community. So Jesus to respond with with this was absolutely normal. Now, I want to talk about what this means. So let's go. um, Let's just look at what it means to love. So the first commandment in all of Scripture to love God comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4. And love is not just an emotional feeling, but it is a a decision to think and act the best towards the other. Love is a difficult name to to, uh, define or a difficult difficult word to define. We're going to define it over the next 15 weeks. But it is uh, it means to love God means to orient myself by choice and behavior Towards God's kingdom, his name being held in high regard, his will being done. It is to offer myself as a sacrifice to God, both emotion, choice and action and will. This is the first command to love. Now, we're to love God with our heart. The word is Levav and the the first century Jewish perspective. It was the primary place for your will. It's not just your emotions. We're talking about the inclination, the intentions the seat of thought. It's where you make decisions and choices. This is a Jewish understanding, the source of decision making and will in your life. So to love God with your heart in our context is to have a single minded devotion to willing and working the best towards God. Are you with me? Love with your heart. The word soul is nefesh. Say nefesh. 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 Soul is it, it comes from this understanding that it is the being of the person that we are a combination of dust and deity. According to Genesis, we don't have a soul. We are a soul. We are physical and spiritual, and with physical, we are emotional, social, and mental. And all of that integrated together is what we, what the Hebrews understood, or the Jewish community understood, as the soul. There was not a divide between the spirit and physical. It was all blessed in Genesis 1 and 2 by God. Are you with me? And so the soul is uh, the whole integrated person with all of those uh, personal dynamics, our essence, being oriented towards God. The soul is the place where our lives are integrating every aspect of our being, those physical components, those spiritual components, the will, the decision, the desires. All of that is being oriented to God. We're going to break this up in a couple of weeks. Bill's going to do a great talk on this. So I'm just kind of doing an overview. Are you with me so far? Love God with your soul. And then the other part is strength. And this word means power or might. Um. Another translation in, in Hebrew is very, very. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Very, very. Like do it really well or do it strong. Um, the word, the Hebrew word, this is interesting. It was because there are only a few Hebrew words. There are I think 70,000. And um, so they, they changed their meaning over time. But the word strength became by the time of Jesus, it became the word for possessions So one translation of this Shema prayer is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with everything you possess or all of your stuff. Think about the implications for us today. So uh, love God with your strength, but it also has connotations for your physical body, your health, your diet, your sexuality. Love God with all of those things. And what was added by Jesus' time is the word mind, and it means intelligence and understanding. So you could say that the Shema prayer... Is a Hebrew way of saying love God with your entire existence. That there is a holistic command with an emphasis on the necessity of total commitment to God. That God lays right to every facet of the human personality. I want, I want to make sure you grasp what we're talking about. That to love God is to love God with our emotions, our feelings. And for a postmodern generation that bases everything on how we feel, that is significant. We are to align our feelings with God, our, our, our thoughts with God. Our sexuality is to be redefined and reoriented to God. Our physical be existence, our diets are to be offered to God. Our finances, our stuff, every part of the human personality that we have is to be offered to God in, in a, a choice to love and make a decision. Are you with me? Six of us or three of us and a baby are with me. so this is um and now and okay and i'm trying to make the point and uh, this is how a good jew would interpret this text how do you love god then how okay so yes the entire existence but how do you practically love god then well It outlines how you love God based on verse seven through the rest of um, seven and nine. It says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit down, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hand, bind them on your forehead, write them on your door frames of your houses. In other words, the way that this was understood is that to love God was to live the Torah or to be obedient to the law. Or you could say simply this to love God in the first century. Was to follow the rules. To write it out. To memorize. To recite. To instruct. And to wear the Torah itself. So this was what it meant to fulfill the great Shema. To be obedient to the list. Are you with me? But Jesus doesn't stop with the Shema. He adds something that's very provocative. He adds Leviticus 19.18 which will reinterpret the Shema completely. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. The primary way to fulfill what God is expecting of you is to love God with your entire existence and express through your love for other people. It's not to simply be obedient to the law and follow the rules. It is to be obedient to loving your neighbor. All right, let's let's I want to go back to that story in Luke and this will all tie together. Just stay with me. Don't check out if you're new. Luke, and this is, what, this is why it's dramatic, because apparently the teacher of the law might have heard Jesus saying this at some point, because it's, it's read in Matthew that Jesus says this, but in Luke's gospel, uh, the man says it. But then he follows up with a question, and Jesus responds with a parable. So he answers correctly, but then it says in verse 28 of Luke, You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the man, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked what any proper expert of the law would. Well, then who is my neighbor? How do I follow this law? How do I live out the rule? Is the only perspective he has. Because according to the first century Jewish understanding of God, God wants you to be obedient to the rules. He wants you to live out the Torah. Follow the letter of the law. Are you with me? And Jesus's response is a man was going down from Jerusalem to to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him um, and went away, leaving him half dead. Highlight half dead. That's important. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And then uh, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring uh, his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law of the law replied. The one who had mercy on him and Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the parable is very controversial. And here's why it's challenging the perspective of God to the first century Jew. And it's challenging the interpretation of the law. It says there are four characters, a man who gets beat up and he's half dead, which is Luke's way of saying he looks like a corpse. There's a priest, a Levite and a Samaritan. The priest is serving in the temple and the the fact that he's coming from Jericho or two, we we get a sense that he's either on his way to perform his tasks in the temple. A priest would only get a couple of times to do this in his lifetime because there were lots of priests during the time of the temple. And so they they might only serve three times in their entire life. So you have a holy man going to worship God in the temple. A Levite is a temple assistant. Another holy man probably coming from or going to serving God in the temple. And it says in Numbers and Leviticus that priests are not to touch corpses body because of fear of contamination and becoming unclean and unholy and impure, impure. So the first century Jew is saying he is obeying God's law by uh, by the time of Jesus. Rabbis wrote that you uh, uh, you had to stay a certain distance away. You had to stay on the other side of the road because if your shadow cast over the corpse, you were considered unclean. This was written into the the written oral tradition that you had to be far enough away so your shadow wouldn't touch The dead body. And so do you realize what he's asking? He's asking, well, how do I fulfill this law? Who's pure? Who's not? And Jesus completely dismantles his perspective of Torah and of God. And the Samaritan, we've heard the story of the Samaritan. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Because when uh, Babylon came in and exiled the Jewish, the Israelites, certain Jewish community members stayed in and intermarried with the Canaanites and created a new breed, the Samaritans. And they they, uh, practiced syncretism. They took the Jewish religion and the Canaanite religion and morphed them together. And so to the Jew, they are religious heretics. They don't know God. It would be like the Bloods of the Crips or the Taliban. Republicans and Democrats right now. Whatever you're, however you want to disassociate it. Um, And Jesus says, go and do that. Go and be neighborly. The question isn't who is my neighbor, but who can I be neighborly to? And so Jesus reinterprets and introduces a new way to see God. Loving God is directly linked to how we love others. We are to not question who is my neighbor, but to ask who can I be neighborly to. Jesus calls us to surrender our safe neighbor love and look to those in need. And so, in other words, this commandment says this a spiritually formed person loves God by following Jesus and by pursuing a love for others. This is the primary way we are to reorient our existence around following Jesus and loving our brothers and sisters as we love ourselves. This is the secret. To becoming fully alive. This is the essence of the Christian life. This. will be written all over the New Testament. In Galatians, Paul says the fulfillment of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. In John chapter 1, verse uh, 1 John chapter 4, he says, For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, they cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. This is fundamental. There is an unbreakable link for how we love God. We love each other. So the temptation, as in the first century, is to say, I can love God maybe today by reading my Bible, by showing up to church, by participating in a community group, by fasting, by practicing practicing solitude. But if I don't love my brother, I cannot love God. John will say, you're liars. Why is this so important? This is why. Jesus radically reshapes the Jewish first century of God. And here's why this whole series is being talked about. According to Jesus, God is not solely interested in your obedience to the letter of the law, but to the very essence of his nature. We are to become like him. So at the heart of Jesus' message, we are to um, is to we are to recognize a God who is love. Jesus reveals a God who insults our understanding of justice, grace and mercy. And our puny perspective of God, and here's why, and this is the main point. Our concept of God directly shapes the way we live and the way we treat others in the world, or you could say, our view of God shapes the world we live in. This is why this message is so profound. Our view of who this God is, how do we love this God? And what is he like shapes the world we live in? Let me give you some examples and then I'll talk for my own life. If you are worshiping a God who is concerned about the rules, then you become legalistic. Your job is sin management to not break the rules, to read your Bible and do what it says, but your real concern is following the letters. If you worship a God who's only concerned with caring for the poor, then you, you fight injustice, and that's amazing, but you neglect the rest and community that God invites you into. You give yourself to the point of death. If you worship a God who's only interested in moralism, then you focus on being better than the guy next to you. We live in a culture of moralistic, therapeutic deism. So you worship the self-help God, where your prayers are all about making you happy and feel good. Do you know what I'm talking about? This God that you worship is only concerned with your emotions of feeling happy. This is a postmodern God. That How many people say I do it because it makes me feel good? I mean, their, their reasoning is not logic or thought out philosophical debate. It's feelings and emotions in the place of God. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or maybe you worship the prosperity gospel, God. And your prayers are about, it looks like you're putting money in the vending machine. I show up to church so that I can have a better marriage. I show up to community group. God, would you just give me a better job? Your, your entire life is about you getting what you want. It's kind of like the, the American dream God or the middle class God, as I like to call it. The God that's super interested in keeping you safe and comfortable and having a better job. And keeping you away from those people, those half-dead people that you walk by on the streets. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, George Bernard Shaw said this quote. He said, God made man in his image and man returned the favor. Jesus comes to the earth and is the revelation of what God is like. And for most of us, our image of God, our understanding of God, is far too small, far too incompetent, far too graceless than the God of Scripture. So I, most of the people I talk to worship the angry God that's waiting to punish them when they mess up. That they're afraid if they mess up with their girlfriend or they, they, they sin over here, that God's going to punish them, that they're going to get an F on their report card or they're going to they're going to get a tire blow out on the freeway that you're going to start suffering some horrific illness. Literally, this is these are conversations I've had with people in this room. And maybe you worship A God that I've had to repent from. It's the disapproving father. It's the God that is. That says to you, you're not good enough as you are. My whole life, for whatever reason, I grew up with this massive insecurity that says that said I wasn't good enough as I was. And so I learned to project this onto relationships, onto everyone onto our church, onto my family, onto my wife, onto, onto God. And so, how did this work itself out? How did that view of God work itself out, out in life? When I was a senior in high school, I was on the all-male hip-hop dance team, as you know. I was part of a comedy improv group that I managed. I was the president of Drama Club. I was in every play. I was in choir. I was a triple threat, dancer, singer, actor. And... <laughs> National Honor Society president. I was an ASB Renaissance president. Um, I served at the church. I exhausted myself because my value came from getting people's approval. Now, when you get married, it's I'm doing the same thing for my wife. It's all this stuff. And she wants her. Of course, her love language is quality time. All I want to do is acts of service. Like, just no, I wash your car. I cleaned the house. She's like, just sit with me and do nothing. What? Imagine that to God now. I come back to faith when I was 18. I left the faith. I convinced, I did reverse apologetics at UCSB. I convinced people to leave the faith. I came back with this massive weight of guilt. You know how I fixed it? I got a big old NASB cross-reference Bible. I printed off all the apologetic stuff off the website. I went to Huntington Beach Pier and tried to convince people by yelling at them that they're going to hell to come back to faith. I started a homeless ministry in college in downtown L.A. at Skid Row and MacArthur Park every Saturday, passing out food, sometimes by by myself, because deep inside I had this massive wound that was projecting it to God that God's only pleased with me if I do all this stuff for him. I read my Bible all the time. Bible in 90 days. I did started small groups, sexual purity groups. I started church when I was 23. I mean, there was this massive wound inside of me. Trying to prove that I'm, God noticed me. I'm good enough, right? Our view of God shapes the world we live in. It shapes the way we treat each other. And Jesus is radically redefining what God is like in Scripture. I don't know what God you worship, but our goal is to f- come to the God of Scriptures who wants you to become fully alive. We're not talking about self-help. Because if you follow Jesus, you'll read things like, hey, if you don't hate your brother and sister and mother, you're not worthy of me. If you don't, if you really want to live, you have to die to yourself. You have to carry a cross. That's not very convenient. Unless your cross has an iPod adapter in it. (laughs) Jesus radically, he knows us so well that we need to repent from our Lack of understanding and recognize that God shapes the world we live in. Our view of him shapes the world we live in. So we need to radically reorient ourselves around God of the scriptures by following Jesus with everything we have and learn to love others as we love ourselves. I long uh, for a community that really lives. I want to be a part of a community that my kids will just be discipled by being around people that get it. And we, guys, we have it here. We have people that really get it. I mean, get this life that I'm, you know, like my friend Suresh in India. He's a guy that I just like, he's taking something. You know, he started an orphanage when he was young got like 12 or 15 orphanages he's got he plants over 300 churches every year he feeds widows he has uh, homes for those that are sold into sex slavery and prostitution yeah he he, he lives this he he has he's been given four-story homes to live in with his family he's adopted like 14 kids and he, he moved his house to one of the orphanage's sites with 450 orphans and um, built a thatched roof one room home because he wanted to remember where he came from I mean, this is a guy that has a major movement going going all over southeast, southwest, um I'm sorry, East, north and south India. I mean, he's just a phenomenal guy. And he gets this. He can't imagine loving God by not taking care of the orphans and the widows and the, those that have AIDS and those that are dying of leprosy. And that's OK. That's the extreme. I look at my mom and I don't know if she's here, but my mom models this crazy life to me. And she always has since I was a kid. My mom, we had a, a five bedroom house. And my, I had two brothers and we always had to share a room because we had families living with us all the time. We never had a, a really a family meal alone because we always had extra people at the table. Uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas filled with people at our, at our table. Fifty people coming. there, strangers. But my mom always said they're family. Um, I mean, she still does this today. I remember I just found a journal when I was 16. My parents divorced and it was a, I was writing about how hard Christmas was because my mom couldn't afford Christmas gifts that year. And uh, it was a hard season. I wasn't talking to my dad. And um, I remember my mom saying she didn't have enough money for gifts, but we managed to feed like 40 people at, at Christmas. And she, she's lived this radical generosity that completely insults my perspective of generosity. She's never had enough for herself, but she manages to give everything she has away. She's, to this day, she has college students, people that can't afford rent, living in her home for free. I mean, that's just what she gets. And it's this, this perspective that I look at people that have multiple homes and they're just not living. And then I look at people that barely are getting by and they're full of life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, There's a couple in our church that uh, uh, they don't know I'm going to share this story, but they they uh, he started serving as setting up chairs and and making coffee. And he he comes here early on Sunday to he has a full time job. His wife has a full time job to to make coffee for us and set up on Sunday only to drive back to California Heights up past the four or five, pick up his wife and come back to church. They had to take over their community group because no one else would do it. And they didn't feel worth They didn't feel like they could. They, they weren't called to it. I mean, they didn't know if they were called to it. They didn't feel good enough to do it. And they're amazing community group leaders. They took their community group to Lincoln Park on Saturday to serve the homeless. I mean, they're modeling this life and they would never think they, they, they got it, but they got it. I mean, it's that simple. It's taking friends that don't have homes on Sunday to lunch. It's caring for uh, the, the single moms in our, in our community that aren't going to get Mother's Day presents next week. It's showing up with Easter baskets for the families that can't afford it in our church or that are, are fostering kids. I mean, this is what it means to really live. And we get it, get it on Sunday, we get it, you know, theologically, but we, we don't get the practice. Because everything inside of us wants to stand on the other side of the road and just walk by. It doesn't take much to be really creative on what it means to love others. We don't have to go to Africa. Some of us are called to Africa. We literally have enough resource in here to meet everyone's needs. And so as we talk about this series, we're seeing it. I want to highlight stories where it's happening. I mean, there are some amazing people in this community that are just... I just want to say, you yes, you got it. You're listening to people's stories. You're taking people out to lunch. You're walking with hurting. You're sending flowers to those that are grieving. I mean, we get it. But how do we continue to live for God and live for others? So this series is simply this. It's about learning how to love God. It's learning how to love ourselves. I think there's a, a problem in our society. We have a narcissistic culture. Um, there's an epidemic of narcissism. But we don't really know how to care for our souls, do we? How do we learn to practice forgiveness? How do we learn to, to take care of our physical soul side of our soul? How do we uh, integrate spiritual care? And how, how do we wrap our minds around using our jobs for God? How do, we, how do we rest? We're going to talk about those things. How do we really love one another? I mean, practically speaking, how, how can we do this? It's not just about caring for the needy, but how do we love having a sick wife right now? I'm learning how to receive, and it is really hard to have to receive meals because it, the exhaustion of caring for someone that's bedridden for seven, six or seven weeks now, and having to repent from a heart that doesn't want to keep serving, because that's there, discovering that and say, okay, how do I do this out of a good, good place and a desire to do this? Um, but how do, we, how do we learn to grieve with one another? And one of the, the hopes I have is that as a community, we learn to stop when, when life alters one of us, we learn to bear with one another. So this is the general idea. That we want to reorient ourselves around the God of Scripture. So we're going to talk about what God's like. We're going to talk about what it means to love one another and what it means to love ourselves. Are you in for it? All right. So let me close with this. And, um, you know, as I've been prepping for this series, I've been wondering if there's anything significant about the way of reciting the Shema love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. If, if we took this as a discipline, I want to invite you to simply begin every day, every evening, every morning, every evening, as you go about your business, as you walk along the day, just to allow that to permeate in your soul. Allow that, that love God, love others to permeate. It will radically transform your day. You know why? Because as I'm driving, I see the guy on the street and I have to pull over because it's permeating inside of me. When I'm disappointed, I have to get up and go to Del Taco at 11 o'clock at night when my wife is hungry. Love God. Love others. It is an active pursuit of orientation. So I just want to invite you as a discipline as we move about. Let's just try to recite this together. So let's stand and we're going to we're going to read what Jesus says in Matthew together as a way to close. I'm going to invite the the team to come up. Matthew 22. So if you could go back to Matthew 22, Melissa, for me, if you have a second so we can recite this, unless you guys already have this memorized. Verse 37. And we'll skip to verse uh, verse 39. And so it says this. Let's say it together. I'll just say it and then you can repeat. Love the Lord your God. Lord your God. With all, your heart with all your, soul, with all your, your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor as yourself. Lord Jesus, we invite you now. To help us understand what this means to live fully alive to you Holy Spirit would you give us your grace now to recognize where we have idols and false images of God I pray for my brothers and sisters that that worship the disapproving father or the the vending machine God, or um, the angry God, the gods that don't look like you in Scripture at all. And I pray that we can surrender those and come into a place of understanding. Lord Jesus, I pray desperately for a community that really gets love others. The unbreakable link to loving you is actually expressed in our love for one another. If you are um, feeling like you want prayer for anything, we have a ministry team that would love to pray for you. So here's what I want to do. If you just want to come forward, if maybe you have a posture of God and orientation to God, that's inaccurate. You you are that you worship that disapproving father, whatever it is. If any of those connect, I would just love to pray for you. And our prayer team would love to walk with you. Or if you have any needs, um, we we keep this time for us to pray for people. It says in Scripture to pray for those who are sick. We believe that God is living. And that when we come together, we should lay hands on each other and bless each other because that God can minister to us through that way. So we're going to worship. But if you want to pray for anything, I just want to invite you to come down now. There's no reason to hesitate. And we'll just begin to pray. And so we'll worship together and we'll close it in just a few minutes. Okay. about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.